I'm Dawn Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room, episode 30. Carly, we've been around the sun 30 times. <laughs> wow, wow, we've turned 30 and we're not jaded yet. How great is that? <laughs> well, you know what they say, don't trust anyone over 30. But in this case, I think we can make an exception. No, actually, now the term is don't trust anyone under 30. Because <laughs> you know those millennials, you know those millennials out there. They're killing wine. They're killing mayonnaise. They're killing everything else. Um, person, I think they, that people have it all wrong. Millennials are doing are killing things like I don't know racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism. I mean, they're starting to make a dent in a lot of those things. So I say go millennials. I'm okay with that. I got to say that right now it's still a tough time. Our governor here in Connecticut pulled a fast one. This week, he uh, decided that May 20th is not going to be the big day for a lot of things to change. He's actually pushed a lot of things back till June 1st, which surprised a lot of people. But I think that's a good move, actually. I'm not really ready for a lot of changes. And I think that we should do this slowly. I wish the rest of the country would do the same. Well, I well, a lot of it came from influence. I, I think that in in this case, the recent situation Governor Lamont, I think, has taken a little bit of a bad rap. A number of retailers, uh, merchant associations, they went to him and said, we're not ready. Include, especially the beauty salon and the barber shops. That industry went to the, I mean, they have representatives go to the governor personally and say, we're, you're talking about having our workers in close proximity to people on May 20th. We're not, we've been, we've been working like crazy to try and get the regulations in place. We're not ready. We're just not. I mean, so a number of groups have gone to governor saying not yet. So the, a lot of people who are complaining to governor Lamont, I think you need to take a step back and realize the governor responded to the things that citizens said that needed to be done, not the other way around. And now Republicans are calling for a special session because they want to put the brakes on this runaway Democratic government, just like in other states where Republicans have actually been successful in getting some courts to stop the restrictions, which I I just look at these people and I think, well, I hope you have your funeral plans all lined up. Well, I have two things to say about that. Number one, stop reading Kevin Rennie in The Current to stop. And secondly, remember, these are the same Connecticut Republicans that are you that are trying to demean teenagers to raise campaign cash. Everything they do is a show and a and an agenda. Don't listen to them. Lives are at stake. Well, Carly's talking about the federal lawsuit here in Connecticut in which three cisgender Young teenagers who are about to graduate high school are suing Connecticut, the CIAC, the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Association, and other uh, school boards across the state. They want the transgender athletes who are allowed by law and policy to compete with cisgender athletes to be banned from women's sports. And they are insistent that they name two people of color. Two young women, 18 years old, Terry Miller, Andrea Yearwood, they want to call them male. And the judge said, no, 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 no. We're not going to have that. We're not going to be disrespectful. 
And the Alliance Defending Freedom, which we've been telling you has been labeled an extremist hate group, which is a law firm backed by Christians who are against LGBT rights. They are representing these girls and they are so angry that they can't call two young black women men that they want the judge to recuse himself. And they've taken the unusual step of asking the judge to step away. Well, now, now, they're, going, now they're going after the judge, Don. I mean, they're going after the judge over a case he was a part of almost 30 years ago to try and say he's unfit to be on the bench for this case. And it just shows the level, of, it shows the level of desperation and how unhinged these people are in a lot of ways. One, And to me, that's just another example of, I mean, I've said this a lot. Um, Connecticut is dealing with two public health crises, COVID-19 and transphobia. Absolutely. And the columnists on the right who see these lawyers, I use that word so sparingly, are just in, up in arms because they think the judge is biased by making them use a word like transgender. Well, I just see it like this. To, to me, it's a sign their lawyers really don't have a case and they know it. And remember, these are the same people that lied about bathrooms. They lied about public accommodations. They lied about so many things. And these are also the same people who realize that they got beat on so much. They they tried to win on, on marriage. They lost there. They tried to, to win on the gay panic. They lost there. They're trying to they're trying to hang on to whatever little piece of fabric they got left. And this is the one. And so far, this judge and I hope this judge stands his ground. And I hope that people such as let's that groups such as like the Connecticut Bar Association, for example, stand their ground right with them and say no hate in our state. I mean, this I case think should that, be thrown out on the merits. I think that they will go to the Court of Appeals, which is what the judge recommended if they're unhappy. Um, and that's fine go through the process, but I hope the judge sticks to his guns. It really worries me. I see a trend growing that in them claiming they're being discriminated against when we are the ones who have been saying we're being discriminated against by them adopting our playbook of claiming discrimination. I worry because the country has shifted very strongly to the right in the last four years. And even if it was just hidden. It's no longer hidden. Transphobia is alive and well in America and in Connecticut. And what I'm really waiting for is the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has to send a signal that they will not allow this to happen. And in the last week since we talked last, we lost Amy Stevens. She's the plaintiff, the second transgender plaintiff to go before the Supreme Court, who all she wanted was to be able to be herself at her job, and she was fired. And she's had such health struggles for the last six years that she finally succumbed, and she will not live to see the outcome. And now we all have our fingers crossed that the justices will see that transgender people deserve protection from discrimination in employment. Yeah. And Don, I can tell you that that's a heartbreaker. I didn't realize until you really briefed me on how on how far the her her health problems had gone. And this is a very this 
losing Amy Stevens was a was sad. It was sad for our movement. And to think that this woman deserved to be there when we win. And it just means that we have to redouble our efforts more than ever to make sure that we do win, even if we lose in the courts. And that's the one thing, Don, I understand that there's a lot of fear out there. And believe me, I, I feel that fear. I share that fear. I feel it. But I but I have a feeling the Supreme Court is going to turn it will vote on the wrong side of all three cases that are up for grabs. And the question I want to ask my rainbow family in this state and in this country, what are you prepared to do? And are you prepared? Are you prepared to put your body at the barricades? Are you prepared to wear out some shoe leather for justice? Are you ready to do it? Because we're going to need to. Take it to the streets, Carly. We got we Don, we have to. I mean, we have to be prepared to take it to the streets, but not only that, we have to be prepared to we have to be prepared to have the mindset that now it's time to realize that we have to we have to march together no matter what your particular, no matter what your political orientation may be, no matter what your tendency may be. Don, you know you and I don't agree on a on a great deal politically, but one thing we do agree with is that we want our we will protect our rights. So I'm willing to march with you. I'm willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and everyone else in my rainbow family and realize this is a fight we have this is a fight we will need to fight. This is a fight we're going to need to win, no matter which way the well turns. We well, have just, to continue to organize and march and agitate. It just might get me off the couch. I will say this. We will win the long run, the long fight. But we may lose the short fight. You're right. And I'm prepared either way, even if the Supreme Court were in some weird twist of fate to actually support Amy Stevens's case and her estate is still fighting on. The case is not dead just because she is. Mm -hmm. Sorry to put it so brutally, honestly, but that's how it goes. Here's the thing. We're the underdogs, Carly. We are society's underdogs. And it just so happens here at OutSports that it's underdogs week. And I would love to hear from you three things. Tell me who you think the underdogs of sports are. Who are the underdogs of society? I've already given you my answer. And last, I really want to know who are the underdogs on Star Trek and sci-fi? We're going to tackle all that right after the break. And we're back here at the Transporter Room. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb along with Don Innes. And Don, you're asking, who are some of the underdogs? Don, I want to know who your underdogs are because you just wrote a great article on that in Sports. Well, thank you very much. I was really excited to write this over the weekend. I wanted to kick off Underdog Week by talking about the ultimate underdogs, the 1969 Mets. And I counted myself as an underdog because I was five years old watching the 69 Mets. And it just encouraged me so much that they could do the impossible. I decided I came out to my mom. I told her I was a girl. And she told me I was mistaken. I was just special. That must have been a great time to be in New York. Because you had two great underdog stories happen in the space of like five months. You had the Mets, who were incredible, and 
digging digging some more information on the Mets. I didn't know that the Mets lost on opening day to an expansion team. That's wild. First, first opening day of baseball season, they lose 11 to 10 to the brand new Montreal, Montreal Expos. Expos. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other side, I didn't realize that the Mets that year 100 games. Yeah. They won a lot of games. I mean, they won a lot of games. I, I, I knew the Mets, obviously, they had to be good to get to the to get into the World Series. But to win 100 games when just seven years before then they lost 120. Right. That's and don't kind forget, of it. I mean, don't forget the Mets also the first expansion team to ever win a World Series. That's and that's another one, just another one. And the way they and the way they won it, they had a lot of great, they had a lot of clutch plays. Who will I forget? Tommy Ag and Ron Zavoda making those big catches. Oh, that amazing! Rob, sure, that Rob sure multi base hits. Absolutely, uh, and it's great on YouTube. It's it's still out there. You can still watch it. And just on, I mean, just great on the mound. I mean, they had excellent on the mound, clutch hitting, all the things you want. And that's what they did. But then, just then, maybe four months later, Joe Namath is extending it. Joe Namath is telling the world, I guarantee it, and then backs it up. So you've got the upstart, you've got the upstart teams, teams who played in Queens, both winning championships in the space of six months. I mean, what a time to be at Chase it. Stadium. It was yeah. great. I mean, what a time not to be a fan of the of the uptown Manhattan socialite rich folks teams, the Giants and the and and those people in pinstripes. Who, <laughs> who by the way, I'm gonna say it right now. If you were a New York Yankee, you can never be an underdog. You can't play the underdog card if you wear those pinstripes. Jeter, no, not an underdog. No, Reggie, no. No, can't be an underdog. Sorry. Um, Aaron Judge. You'll never be an underdog because you play for the Yankees. Oh, yeah. St. Louis Cardinals, they can't be underdogs either. UConn women's basketball, you'll never be an underdog. Now US champions, women's- it's true. Champions yeah. can't be underdogs. So who's your pick? Who's, besides the Jets, who would be your uh, your uh, underdogs in sports? Underdogs in sports? I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, uh, I mean, there's so many to choose from. I mean, well, you got me- a story in sports today, don't you? Yeah, I put down what the rules are for being an underdog, and I'm pretty sure some people are going to disagree, and that's fine. I mean, I I mean, when I think of the underdog, when I think of underdogs, first team I think of is 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, because to me that is truly, I mean, and yes, movies have been done on two movies have been done on this team, but fiction. Hollywood, even the movie Miracle, Disney movie that came out like about eight years, that came out like seven, eight years ago, couldn't couldn't begin to do the the real story justice because this literally was a this really was a sandlot team in a lot of ways. These are college kids for the most part. These are college kids. There were there were no there was maybe one surefire NHL star in that team, and ironically, he did not have the longest career. In fact. The players who had the long, one of the players who had the longest career did something really, really cool and actually played for a team you love, Don. If if I have it right, you're an Islanders fan. Oh, I absolutely. Oh, check this out. From the dynasty Ken, days. Oh, yeah. Ken Mora mm-hmm. was a defenseman for the 80 U.S. Olympic team. Yeah. February 1980, Ken Mora is standing on top of that podium in Lake Placid after the win over Finland, getting his gold medal. Guess where he was three months later? <laughs> on Long Island. He was on a shift for the New York Islanders holding up a Stanley Cup. 
He Can is I ask your question, ones. though? I want to ask Certainly. your question. Certainly. Can you still support Bill Cosby after what he's done and say he's funny? Can you still support someone who has disgraced themselves, but you know that it was unrelated to what makes them so beloved? Can you support the Miracle on Ice hockey team when they sat there with President Trump and said what a great man he is? I can support their accomplishments and at the same time disagree with their politics. Now, Bill Cosby kind of a different deal because it's hard. To, it's a lot harder for me to separate Bill's work from what he did because what he did is just so beyond the pale in so many ways. It's a lot harder deal for Bill. I mean, How about OJ? And OJ, I'll... Um, I have, again, it's another conflicting feeling about OJ because let's, I mean, it's a conflicting feeling because OJ was a great football player, great college football player, great professional football player. No question. No question. And I'm one of those people who I have a very complicated view and we don't have all the time in the world to go through that here, but I have a very complicated view <laughs> of OJ because on one side, I, I've always maintained the idea that rich people don't kill people. Rich people have people killed. And I believe OJ, let me put it this way. I don't, I am a, I am more inclined to believe that OK, OJ did not kill his wife, but I think OJ knows who did because OJ was a part of it. There are too many, there's still so many unanswered questions about the OJ case. But again, it shows what happens when you don't do due diligence in an investigation and you don't have that due diligence done in a courtroom and it affects what happens in a courtroom because really, OJ probably should have been a cut and it should have been open to shut case. And I lumped these and, all together because it got butchered so many ways. I lumped these all together because I personally feel that what Donald Trump has done both before the pandemic and after is criminal. I think he needs to be brought up on charges. I think he's murdered people. I think he's murdering people today. I think that he's a criminal. I think George W. Bush was a criminal. And I think George W. Bush looks like one of our best presidents in the view of the rearview mirror, given Trump. And I'm sorry to be so political today, but I bring up Bill Cosby and OJ and Trump all together because for me, they're all criminals. Well, I, and and I wouldn't be and I'd be inclined to agree with you on that. And that's what makes it so difficult, for example, to see the the 80 U.S. Olympic hockey team standing with such a divisive figure when they served in many ways to unite a country. I mean, think about where we were February 1980. I mean, so much seemed to be going bad in, bad in the United States. Uh, I mean, we're in the middle of a recession. There's an unpopular, I mean, there's, the Soviets have inv are invading Afghanistan, for example. A lot of people don't like that. We have chaos in our country, infrastructural crisis and energy crisis, problems around, the, problems around yeah. the world. I mean, AIDS was mm -hmm. really just starting, the body count was starting to mount. Mm -hmm. and, and we had, uh, and in many ways, we had a quiet, I mean, Jimmy Carter wasn't wrong when he talked about the malaise that put over country that sapped our national will. This was a nation that needed something to hold on to. And for that time in Lake Placid, a bunch of college kids that most people hadn't heard of. Al Michaels had the greatest line at the opening of the broadcast. Most of the people in this building don't know a blue line from a clothesline. 
it's immaterial. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But yeah. it was true, though. I mean, that group at a time, and and to me, that's the thing about sports. Sports at times gives you what you need when you need it. And I mean, that harkens back to another story. The uh, another story of a of you talk about an underdog fighting the good fight. Let's talk about Lisa Wainwright for a second. Oh, that's great. Yeah, sure. I mean, let's I mean, let's talk about did an article on Tuesday on Lisa Wainwright. And I'll tell you, I mean, by the way, a special, special shout out to John Holmes, John Holmes, good friend of the show here at over there in the UK at Sky Sports. To have somebody like a Lisa Wainwright, I mean, especially when, while going through a fight of her own, fight of her own with breast cancer and get, but still, and, but she said she found focus in doing the job that she's doing, CEO of the UK Sport and Recreation Alliance, which essentially is the group that oversees sport in the country. I right. mean, they are the, they are the, they're the, they're the quango that, that oversee it, that in many ways oversees the planning of their culture, of their miniature sport and culture. And she's put in um, Herculean work for inclusion throughout her entire career. And she's saying that now's the time when there's no sports going on. Now's the time to really have those conversations. This is a perfect time. And she talks about how, especially right now, sport can serve as a catalyst. And I'm a believer that, you know, I'm a believer that uh, that sport shouldn't just go along to get along. And I believe that a lot of people talk about, well, I don't want my sports to be political. Yeah, take the Sport politics by nature, of sports. Sports has always been political. I mean, also I look at I also look at an underdog who I read today. I mean, that? I read a uh, uh, underdog who had a great thing in the Players Tribune today. Akim Alou for the for the Calgary Flames in the NHL, talking about the racism that he encountered at the youth and the junior level in Canada, coming up through the game, and in some way, and and. He's basically wrote a beautiful thing in Players Tribune talking about enough is enough. And he touched on it's time for and and he it was obviously playing in the NHL centered on hockey, but he said it's time for hockey to get a handle on racism, get a handle on sexism. Get and also mentioned it's time to clean get homophobia out of our locker rooms and out of our game. It's time to get transphobia out of our locker rooms and out of our game. I mean, this is some, I mean. Sport should be setting a tone because look at history. Look at all the look at all the things in history. Sport set a tone. Martin Luther King told Larry Doby and Jackie Robinson that you made the job easier for me. That's what sport should do. Sports should uplift people. That's what athletics does. Well, I've got one more. I've got one more uh, sports uh, underdog to throw in there. Bartolo Colon, age forty six. He wants one more season to pitch for the Mets. Good luck. I hope he does. I, I mean, hope he does I, too. I, I may hope not be, he does. It may not, he's another cisgender guy, but you know what? He's fighting ageism. He's fighting um, uh, body uh, shaming. I'd love to see him back on the mound. Wouldn't that be great? I wouldn't mind seeing. I wouldn't mind seeing it. I mean, being being a person who still wants to play, even as I'm getting up in the years, and I got a birthday coming up. Oh, you and, do? Yes, I do. I have a birthday coming up. I have, yeah, May 30th. I turned 49. And I still want to get out there and play. I want to get out there and play until they put me in the ground. When I'm when I meet when I meet St. Peter at the gates, 
the first thing I'm going to just ask him two things. One, where can I go work out? And two, and two, does heaven have a ball club I can play for? I oh, heard they have a pretty good the ball club up there. <laughs> See, <laughs> and, uh, but I'm a, I'm a journalist, so I know I'm going to hell. And it's just a question of who, um, who gets the table first? You know, who sets up the table that we're all going to sit at? <laughs> See, Don, I don't, I don't know. I think you'll get, I think you'll get down there, and Satan will be like, no, <laughs> no, we can't let. Oh, you I don't in. want to listen no. to her for the next eternity. <laughs> no, he's like, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, you know, Lord, yeah, it's me. It's Lucifer Morningstar. Listen, that Don Ennis, you, you got her. <laughs> you and Lord. I mean, because that's what I think will happen to me. I'll get up there. I'll get a, hey, if they, if I happen to get sent down to the minors, Satan will be looking at me like, no, no, keep her out of here. No, 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 no. She'll put air conditioning in. No, <laughs> just no, no. So who are your, who are your underdogs for society? I mentioned before that I counted myself as an underdog because of all the challenges I've had in my uh, life and transition, but. I really would like to hear your first nomination for um, maybe not American, maybe the world, world non-sports underdogs. Now, I mean, see, that that's a rough one because there's so many. There, there's, just, there's so many underdogs you can pick. There's so many. I mean, yeah, I, there's so many different ones. I, I'll tell you, actually, I want to start with a group, actually. I want to start with a group. Um, Millennials are my underdogs. This young generation coming up are my underdogs. And yeah, they take a lot of crap. And yeah, people jump on them. But I like the I like the fact that they're that they're busting that stereotype that young people are indifferent and don't care. They're getting out there and they're making their difference. And I think rather than castigating them, we are the old, we us quote unquote older folk, we actually need to listen. And be there and stand with them, give guidance where we need it, but also seed space. I mean, when I think of when when I think of underdogs, I think of them. I think of I think of the people I work with at Trans Lifeline. Those are underdogs. And and yeah, I know you said non-sports, but I think I I think we got a we got a we got a great group of serious hardcore underdogs who are fighting a good fight among the the outsport staff and and in a sense all journalists i look at people like a caitlin burns as an underdog and fight and and she fights the good fight and i really believe she's one of the more underrated journalists in this country and she's put a lot out there in in regards of lgbtq coverage and also again i know she works in sports but i'm going to throw katie barnes out there as well there are so many underdogs and I'm thinking of all the community organizers. I'm thinking about the, I'm thinking about people like, I'm thinking about all the community organizers. I'm thinking about the Patrick Dunn's and the Kimora Harrington's. I, I'm thinking of Tia Lynn Waters who had, who, who was running, the, who, who basically lifted up the ball scene in New Haven and opened the door for so many of us. I, I think of those, I think of those folks. I, I think in so many corners of our world, there are people that we're not gonna we we're not gonna build um statues to. We may not even maybe not yet. I mean, when when if the world goes my way, we'll be building plenty of statues. We'll even build one of a Don Ennis. Oh outside, God help outside, I'll have pigeons, outside of I'll have pigeons pooping on my head. No, so let's, we won't, just, I, let's just let's just set some straight facts here. 
Millennials were born 1981 to 1996. They're ages mm-hmm. 24 to 39 right now. There's 71 yeah. million of them. 71 million. They are surpassing baby boomers as the largest group in society right now. 35% yeah. of the American workforce are millennials. You named a couple of great journalists. A lot of these folks are on the street right now. Journalism is at a crisis point because of the coronavirus, because of the economy. People are getting laid off. Fantastic writers. Talking about Heron Walker. Talking about Katie, Katie so- uh, Sosin. Uh, they are just amazing people who don't have jobs right now. And it breaks my heart. Michelle Garcia, who gave me my start. Do you know when I lost my job and my career in television news, Michelle gave me a shot at The Advocate, my very first online journalism piece. And from there was born a career. I owe everything that I've accomplished in the last six years to Michelle Garcia. And she's got a little baby and now she doesn't have a job. And it's all because, you know, of the folks at Vox that we have work. And I'm so grateful. I'm mm-hmm. so grateful that our Outsports team has not been hit by these furloughs. But there are a lot of folks at other parts of the SB Nation family who are on furlough right now. And I hope to God this economy gets going again so we can have them back. Because Matt Ellentuck and so many other, just too many names to mention. And the folks over at Logo and the folks over at New Now Next. I just, I know so many, I know more people right now who aren't working and I know people who are working. So shout out to those underdogs. Oh, I agree with you. And I also add to the kitty, the entire, most of the staff of the Cleveland Plain Dealer who were thrown out of work a month ago. Unbelievable. As a group. I mean, as a group, I think. But these things are going on long before this, this, oh, this journalism pandemic. has been broken for a long time. I mean, time. it's been, and, and, and again, part of the reason is, and Don, I know what you're going to say, but it's, it's the capitalism. This is what happens when the fourth estate, which is a, which is to me, journalism is not, is a public utility. It is a public trust. It's part of the Commonwealth, but when you let the when you let the hedge fund managers and the Wall Street looky loos in the door, you know when you let a capitalist at the table, they're going to buy the table and kick you out of the building. That's in many ways that's what we've seen in journalism, and it's affecting even the ma- even the majors. I mean, network news staffs are a fourth of what they were forty years ago, and notice the questions they're not asking. No, I mean. The first time, I mean, if nothing else, the only good thing about President Trump, if there is a good thing, is that for the first time, really, in 40, since I was in high school, journalists have a spine. The the White House press corps is getting their Sam Donaldson mojo back. There is a spine. People are starting to, are, are bucking this president. That's why he's kicking them all out of the White House, because they know and 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 that's in a way is good to see, but it'd be nice that the powers that be above them would back them up. Because I'm still miffed about the David Murr interview with Donald Trump. Let's talk about that. Still miffed about that. Well, tell me, tell me more. Simple. If I wanted softballs, I can play in the Southern New England Friendship League for that. It's a slow pitch league. That's not uh, an interview like that is not slow pitch. That's hardball. You've got to throw inside. You better, I mean, 
You needed Bob, I mean, I needed Bob Gibson on that mound. And instead, David Murr gave me, he gave me Rudy Stein when I need Bob Gibson. Or at the very least, Amanda Wurlitzer. That, no, you, no, you got to go with the, you've got to, you got to put the president to task, especially when we're talking about all the half-truths. Kaylee McEnany? Really? You know she lied. I mean, you put another Kelly Ann Conway clone in as press secretary, you know she gonna lie. Come on now. I mean, and and the and it's good that the press is starting to call that out, but they need support from the people up top. They need to know that, I mean, I I studied under under uh, a president of NBC News. I studied under one of David Brinkley's bosses, and the only boss who probably told David Brinkley where to go often, and Mr. Brinkley would attest to this, told me about this, a guy named Robert Mulholland. And Robert and Professor Mulholland always said is that I back my when my when my people are right, when my journalists are right, they know that in that upper office, they have somebody who will go up to corporate and back them. No questions asked. They will back them. And that's what we need in our news departments. There, there are Edward R. Murrows that are waiting to fight the fight, but they got to know that they're not going to be left on the beach. I got to tell you, the one thing that would fix a lot of problems in this country when it comes to covering marginalized groups, I'm talking about the disabled. I'm talking about people of color, talking about women. Even though women are a majority in this country, we are a marginalized group. Trans people, gay people, bisexuals, hire them. Hire people. I know you can't ask about sexual orientation. You can't. You can't ask about it on a job interview. But there are ways of expanding hiring to include marginalized folks. And Maybe people don't like the word affirmative action. Maybe you don't want to have a socialist working for you. But my point is that I think newsrooms would benefit from having people of different stripes. I know that when I worked at ABC News and at NBC News and at CBS News, I worked with conservatives. I worked with liberals. I worked with people who did not vote. We come in all kinds. We're not all left-leaning liberals left-leaning liberals. We're not. Not in the media. Let's move on. I want to know who do you have on your underdog list on the Starship Enterprise? Underdog, underdogs in Star Trek. That's a tough one. That, that's, that's Anybody a wearing one. a red shirt? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to avoid that one, but if, no, but, but what I'm thinking is because one thing about me, my fandom with Trek is I mean, I've wa- I watch the TV series, but I also read the uh, I, but I also read all the other media surrounding it. Like for example, the novels, which in many ways are considered just as canon, just as much canon as the TV shows are. So I've read a lot of the novels, especially after Next Generation, because there was really a cottage mm-hmm. industry in regards to the novels, and the novels in many ways became canon. I mean. There are some times when one episode of, say, Star Trek Next Gen or Deep Space Nine, that next episode that comes after it may not make all the sense. There's a few loose ends. It's because the novels that were the novels that were written at some point 
worked their way into that worked also their way into the canon and the writers took those as well so a good number of my of my underdogs one of my biggest is is a um is do you remember reg reg, reg barkley yes from star trek the next generation and the yes. movies Re i mean reg barkley is my underdog because this is a this is a person who first off played by excellent character actor Dwight Schultz. I mean, most people remember him as Howling Matt Murdoch from the A-Team. But he was but he was a perfect choice for Reginald Barkley. But here's the thing. A lot of people think, okay, Barkley was this kind of like screw up with like all thumbs and you wonder how in the world did this, how did this guy get through Starfleet Academy? But Reginald Barkley became an admiral in Starfleet. In Starfleet. And before that, he saved the crew of the Voyager on Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, crossover character. But in a number of the novelizations, you also see his growth, and you see that he becomes this this person who they thought was all thumbs became not only a value member, but it also shows what happens when you. I mean, that's another thing about Star Trek. Star Trek shows what happens. When you when you give people the opportunity and the tools to move, and you put it in a position to where I've given you have tools and opportunities, and it's up to you. Because I find when you give people, I found that in life when people provide you with the aid and the tools and the guidance to move forward, most ninety nine percent of people are going to move forward. I mean, Joy LaForge, for example, being blind, someone says, "Hey, here's this visor where you can not only see, you can see the whole thing." Um, electromagnetic spectrum. And he's like, go get it. And then he goes from helm to running all the systems on the, to running engineering to being the go-to guy for Starfleet for all things engineering. And let's note, we've extended an invitation to LeVar Burton to be our guest and to many members of the Discovery cast. We'd love to have them on the transporter room. And hopefully you're listening. But I've, got to, I've also got to give you a, uh, uh, tell you about a new listener. Lily Wachowski of the Wachowski sisters, directors of The Matrix, which is coming out with a fourth movie. She's a new listener to the transporter room, and we welcome you, Lily. What if I were to tell you? <laughs> <laughs> I that is just okay. You see, now you've made me all, all sparkle up. I I mean, having having the Matrix on this show, Lily. Like Don, Don probably gave this, but I'm also going to co-sign on it. You have an invitation here, open. Come, come in the door, please. We'll please, beam you up. Please come in the door. <laughs> we will beam you up, please. When well, you mentioned Barkley before, class. you know, there's a as a friend of mine who I've worked with at the Advocate uh, several years ago. Her name is Amanda Carey, and she likes to change her uh, her Twitter handle around. And when Star Trek Picard came out. She made her Twitter handle Star Trek Barkley. That he would have his own show. <laughs> She's a trans woman, lives in Oklahoma City. She's a, uh, a, a stand-up comic, and we look forward to having Amanda on the show. Oh, I've, I'm looking forward to that, too, because, uh, no, devastatingly funny. We could always use more laughter on this show. Oh, man, that's true. You know what always made me laugh was on the original series Star Trek was Chekhov. And I know he's introduced to sort of be like a monkeys Beatles character, but to get the young people watching.
but he was the underdog for the original series that I thought of because, you know, he was young. He was, he made mistakes once in a while. They often made him the one who got uh, uh, attacked or, or hit. In Star Trek The Motion Picture, he got his arm zapped. In Star Trek Two, he had bugs in his ear. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know something? I like what, he, what his character represented. And that was just another part. And that was just, again, Gene Roddenberry being Gene Roddenberry. If we, I mean, he a represented... Russian on the bridge yeah. in 1960s, yeah. Yeah, he represented the hope that this rival, that we will be bigger than this rivalry. And that is the, I mean, that reminds me of another fair, not necessarily an underdog, actually a person who by right shouldn't have been an underdog, but he was an underdog, but he was an underdog in this new circumstance and actually made acclimate himself to the way things are going, which gives me a hope that we can reform capitalist. There's a character on a particular episode of, of next generation where they found this, they found like this, like, you know, one of those things where if you die, we'll keep you in suspended animation in space until we can figure out what's wrong with you and cure it. And then we'll bring you back. They found some people that bought into this. They brought them on the bridge. They found what was wrong with them. They were able to cure them. And basically, they're healthy. One person that they said was like this hard-bitten Wall Streeter named Ralph Offenhouse. And Ralph, it, they, they, they revive him, fix him up. And then he's, he's telling Jean-Luc Picard, I got to call my brokers. I got to call my <laughs> broker in New York. I got to call my banker in Zurich. And, and Picard's like, there's no brokers anymore. There's no bankers anymore. What are you talking about? Basically, he says, capitalism is so over now. But here's the thing. In one, a couple years after that episode, there was a novel written where Picard has to deal with these two warring planets and has to like be the, go, the moderator of a negotiation. He has to be the honest broker and go between. And he's like, I need a wheeler dealer. So guess who Star Treat, Starfleet sends? They send Ralph Offenhouse, who's now a diplomat for Starfleet. And this novel shows how this person who seemed to be so hard-bitten and so resistant to the change floated in, actually just kind of like learned, acclimated himself, and kind of shuttled right in. But at the same time, kept his core essence. Now, I look—I mean, I look at that and say to me, but again, that shows that shows the potential of Star Trek, and in a lot of ways, that also shows the potential for the that Roddenberry's belief that we have an opportunity to evolve ourselves as a species if we're willing to take it. And at another level, that again, I tell people that's what Picard was really about. How do you continue that evolution even when the prevailing winds say your evolution is over? You're at the end. There's no more growth to be had. And Picard's like, how can I grow some more? Again, I tell people, if you're looking for all the, if you're bored by the fact that Picard had no action, yada, 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 you missed the point. You missed the whole point of the series. I'm going to give you a uh, unlikely underdog that may surprise you from the Star Wars universe. Okay. Are you ready? Are you ready? Hit me. Luke, Luke Skywalker. 
here's a farm boy who has some experience in flying, who's basically given the only chance the universe has of defeating the evil empire, who finds out that his new best friend has been hiding a, a sort of important fact to him that his father is the bad guy. And then, like in all the Star Wars movies, he loses his hand. I don't know why <laughs> George Lucas doesn't like people's hands. He really cuts off a lot of hands in that movie, in this series. And then, of all the things that happened to Luke Skywalker, he becomes this disillusioned old hermit who refuses to help his friends until basically he says, all right, I'll do it one last time, but it's going to cost me my life. There's an underdog for you. See, and that's the thing. I hated the way they ended Luke Skywalker. I hated it. But but it's their movie, their way of doing it. I, mean, I just don't see Luke going out like that. I can see Han Solo going out like that because he's basically a cynic anyway. But I could, no, I, I'm with you on Luke because Luke, Luke saved, the, I mean, Luke was a part of the one of my favorite part of the entire Star Trek saga. Because all these things we talked about, all the all the sports upsets, if you're talking about the amazing Mets or 80 Olympic team or every upset you can think of. I mean, it had all these elements and it is the it is the last 10 minutes of New Hope. The Battle of Yavin. To me, that is the ultimate. I mean. I always met when I think of that scene, I always imagine it as a sporting event. I mean, to me, that was Ali, that was Ali against Liston. That was long odds. That was desperate fight, long odds, but it was won by a mixture of a little bit of cunning, a little bit of luck, and some really good and some excellent planning. And also it was beautifully choreographed. The music, everything about Everything about that sequence was beautiful from the choreographing of the of the scenes, which were based on gun cameras from World War II dogfights to to just the whole to just the the drama that was in the scene, the way it was acted, the way the lines were put together, the way the sound was mixed in. Everything was just to me, it was the it was the all it was the underdog formula sports movie but it wasn't formula and it wasn't hackneyed it was beautiful i.e like like i've got one more for you i've got one more set of uh sci-fi underdogs you ready okay hit me entire cast the entire cast and show from space 1999 british produced sci-fi 70s you know um bell-bottom uh uniforms they're stuck on a moon that's traveling around the universe, and there's absolutely no scientific basis for their show whatsoever. They all should have just been thrown into space, and yet somehow this lasted three seasons. <laughs> hey, that's pretty much all. If it comes out of Britain, that's about all sci-fi in one way or another. They're like, how does this work? But you watch it. <laughs> Firefly. Red oh, Dwarf. I love Firefly. Oh, God. Red Great Dwarf. Show. I mean... Yeah, Red Dwarf. I mean, any Doctor Who. I mean, Doctor Who is the ultimate underdog. How in the world? How in the world has this not only been around fifty plus years, but it's gained even more relevance? 
it's gained and it's gained more relevance in places where most people can't see it unless they pirate it or get videotapes of it. I mean, that I mean, that's staying power when a ser- when a series or a concept gets such traction. And also, of course, there's the uh, of course one more uh, one more underdog. You got to go back to Star Trek because I am going to mention this. Uhura is an underdog. Oh yes. Ben well, you mentioned, Cisco you mentioned Martin Luther King earlier, underdog. and that reminded me of her. Yeah. She was going to quit the show if not for Martin Luther King. Oh, yes. I mean, that story, I mean, that blew my mind when she told me at a convention that that was true. Because I went up and asked her, Ms. Nichols, of course. is that true? And Ms. Nichols, I heard this story about you and Martin Luther King. Is that? And she and me said, yes, it is. And she said it like that. She said, I know your question. I get it a lot. She even said, I get this a lot from black people because they don't believe it's true. It's very <laughs> true. I was ready to quit the show because I yeah. I was ready to quit the show. But Martin Luther King actually did ask to meet me, went to Gene Roddenberry and said, I need to meet her. I need mm-hmm. to let her know she can't leave. And, right. and that struck me when she told me, she relayed the whole story literally verbatim from the news reports I read. And she said, yes, Martin Luther King comes in and says, you have to understand, Star Trek is one of the few TV shows I watch. It's one of the few TV shows I let my kids watch because of you and the symbol that you are for black people, that we will be there in the future, that when all this great thing's happening, you we will be there and we will make a presence. And that blew me away hearing it. Because I'll tell you, being a sci-fi fan and being in the skin I'm in is not easy. Now, to the credit of many people, especially there are people at cons and there are many fans who are who are standing in the gap and saying, no, we want this to be, we want geek culture, nerd culture, sci-fi culture, video gaming. We want all these things, cosplay, especially the cosplay people have really been out front in the last few years about this. We want this to be more open to all races, to all gen- to all genders, to all orientation, to all ways of being, because in many ways, these are the, this is the thing that we all that we as sci-fi fans, I consider myself a hardcore sci-fi fan. I was I was sci-fi when it really wasn't cool. This is what we were fighting for. This is what we got thrown in lockers and trash cans in school for while standing up for our fandom because we felt this is something cool and we want to share with everybody. Well, guess what? To, to all the people that want to be jerks, to all the people that want to be edgelords, please shut up. We won. Look at all the people watching comic book TV shows. Look at all the people that are buying video game systems. Look at all the people that are into comic books. Look at all the people who are watching Shira on Netflix. By the way, Carly Pickett, season five, it's the last season. Don't walk, run to see this. If you don't have Netflix, go get it. It's that it, it, it's that queer and that good. But we won. We won. Everybody, geek is in. We won. Enjoy. God bless. I'll close with one last show that's an underdog that I'm binging right now while you're doing your Shira. Remember Farscape? Mm. Another. You didn't watch another. Farscape? Oh, wow. Yes, I did. An- yes, oh. I did. Another great show. Taken from, an taken astronaut way too soon. Tri- 
yeah, astronaut who's uh, catapulted across the universe into some other galaxy, I guess. And he meets some strange aliens, a ship that's alive. Uh, some of the characters are puppets from Jim Henson's uh, wonderful company. And what I loved most about that show was even when they brought um, the characters back to Earth, uh, where where um, Adam Twelve's <laughs> Chemicord was was one of the actors uh, playing his dad, they still kept the the concept going. It was always this um, fish out of water type show, and I really loved that about Farscape. I think there were a lot of um, uh, things to learn, and they took two of the greatest characters from that show and transplanted them into Stargate SG One, which is how I uh, discovered um, Farscape. That, especially that 1990s, it was a good renaissance for sci-fi, and we're seeing that now. Yes, we are. That's why I like more Star Trek. That now. There's going to be a new Star Trek. Did you hear? Star Trek: Strange New Worlds, the adventures of Captain Pike and the Enterprise. Now that I do want to see, that I want to see. But one thing I'm really seeing across more and more, and I want to see it. And if we get Lily on the show, I want to talk about that more. Is now more people are branching. There's more of a branch out now again. I think and I think this next renaissance will be centered around an examination of how we are diverse and we are different, but also in many ways, we're all searching for the same thing, to seek out that new life and new civilization to boldly go where no one's gone before. That is a human thing. Great way to end the show. Carly, episode 30 is in the books, as we say in the Mets world. And off we go to a new generation of episodes. We'll be back next week. Another great episode of LGBT in the ring tomorrow on the Outsports Network. And I look forward to talking to you. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Don. See you next week. Steady as she gets.